to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Today on By Any Means Necessary, we're talking about the impact of the war in Afghanistan on the opioid crisis here in the United States, the continued attacks by the U.S. on Huawei executives, and it's Friday. So it's time for another installment of the Red Spin Report. And later on in the show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on, Yesterday, around 9.15 a.m., 49-year-old Floyd Ray Rosenberry drove his big old elevated black pickup truck with no license plates onto the Library of Congress sidewalk, making threats that he had a bomb. As Rosenberry was sitting in his truck on the sidewalk, which you cannot do anywhere in the Capitol complex in front of any of the buildings, but I don't know how he was allowed to do it, passersby were streaming and documenting his threats. But Rosenberry himself was also streaming, claiming, quote, I'm not hurting nobody. I want to make it clear to the American people, I cannot set this bomb off. The only thing that can set this bomb off is enough decibels. Yeah. In the screen grab that a local news station captured before Rosenberry's Facebook page was deactivated, he appears to be holding some sort of canister with a handheld device. Rosenberry is also heard saying in the live stream, Joe Biden, the South is fed up. Of course they are. The South always be fed up. They've been fed up since they lost the war and their slaves. And they swear the Democrats are trying to make them slaves now with microchips and the vaccines and mask mandates that are exercises and population control and a widespread violation of their rights by the carpetbaggers in Washington, D.C. to take away their state's rights to get infected by a virus that they might or might not survive. I see, I can say these things because I'm from the South. So I understand how those folks who hold on to that lost cause mythology think. But it also turns out that for the past three days before he came to D.C., Rosenberry was actually streaming on Facebook talking about coming to D.C. to, quote, give Americans an option. Making his plans to start a revolution in D.C. clear, he spoke about vaccines, Democrats, President Biden, the healthcare system, a revolution, Afghanistan. But then he said he'd be back home by Sunday. <laughs> OK. Now, look, I'm not advocating for anyone's social media to be flagged and banned and for people to be visited by the feds for posting talk about revolution on Facebook. Like I said yesterday, and I was honestly just guessing when I said it yesterday, this guy's revolutionate the kind of revolution, people's revolution we're over here fighting for, the kind of revolution that would create a system that is equal and just for all of us, where capitalism is a thing of the past and socialism provides for the needs of everyone. So we all have housing, health care, quality education, thriving arts, decent wages, a strong social safety net, no more wars. We we all can have garden plots and grow our own food and share and have chickens in every yard if we want. And maybe free pet care, too, because, you know, pets are family. Yeah. 
No, what I'm saying is that black and other left activists have had their social media posts and pages restricted or completely deactivated for saying a whole lot less than I'm going to D.C. to start a revolution and I'll be back for dinner Sunday. But this is the persistence of the unequal treatment of the demands for change to this system that come from black folks and leftists compared to those that come from right-wing Trump-supporting folks who only believe the system needs to change because their grifter-in-chief, Donald Trump, lied to them and told them that he was for them. They're still as broke as they were before he took office, still as sick, and they're broke because they're sick. But now they want to change the system because they think the evil carpet-bagging dictatorial socialist Democrats, which they're not, stole the election from their Lord Conman and Savior Trump. This is going to continue to happen, folks. So don't think this kind of thing is an outlier. It is not. But I think the most galling part of the coverage of who Rosenberry is has to be this. Channel 7 here in D.C. reported on their webpage that, quote, Rosenberry doesn't appear to have much of a criminal record, just a larceny charge in 1989 and resisting a public officer in 1993. Y'all, not much of a criminal record? Just a larceny charge? Michael Brown was killed by cop Darren Wilson in Ferguson because of an alleged theft of some cheap cigars at a convenience store, and I still question that narrative. George Jackson was sentenced to one year to life in prison for allegedly stealing $70, seven zero, from a gas station, and Jackson was murdered by the state in prison because he became radicalized and was telling the truth about the system and was radicalizing others to that truth. Latasha Harlins was shot to death by store owner Soon Ja Du because she thought Harlins was stealing a $1.79 bottle of orange juice, even though Latasha actually had $2 in her hand to pay for it. Khalif Browder was sent to Rikers for three years for allegedly stealing a backpack that he didn't actually steal and that he was never convicted of stealing, ultimately committing suicide due to the unimaginable torture he endured during that time. And, and resisting a public officer? Resisting arrest? And he walked away alive, largely unendered? Oh, come on, y'all. It reminds me of Miriam Carey, who U.S. Capitol Police shot to death in her car when nearly every news outlet claimed that the dental hygienist from Connecticut, who it was later revealed was suffering from postpartum depression, allegedly tried to ram through the White House security barrier. And basically, she deserved to be killed for threatening Capitol cops and the safety of the White House. Only problem was Carrie, who was black, did not try to ram through any White House gate or White House barrier. The only barrier she banged into was the metal barricade that an off-duty Secret Service officer placed in front of her car, not to stop her from getting close to the White House now, but to stop her from leaving the checkpoint area, which she was clearly confused about because she had never been to D.C. before, and she didn't know where to go. The media never corrected their narrative of Carrie as an imminent threat to the Capitol, and the Capitol Police who shot her to death with her little girl in the back of the car got accolades in the media and a standing ovation in Congress. Once again, we see how the media is complicit in painting a sympathetic picture of white people who actually do make threats to others' lives or who carry them out, but dehumanize black people that the system has already run over like the bulldozer of human rights that it is. 
from the U.S. Capitol to the war in Afghanistan and all the ways that affects us, we are the ones who need this system to change because it is killing us. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Luke Mon, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And let's keep this discussion going this morning. We are talking about the impact of opium sales from Afghanistan and the connection to the struggles that we are seeing in the opioid crisis in this country, a part of this discussion about Afghanistan that we don't talk a lot about, or at least that we haven't. But I'm happy to be joined by Zach Kenner, a member of the Afghanistan Committee of the Black Alliance for Peace and their Solidarity Network for this discussion. Zach, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for inviting me, Jackie. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy that you are here also because, you know, Zach, this has really been bothering me for a while. Honestly, throughout the 20 years that we've been paying attention to what the U.S. has been doing in Afghanistan and as the opioid crisis in this country has escalated pretty much simultaneously with the escalation of the U.S. occupation and activities in Afghanistan. We've seen the opioid crisis escalate also here. And I just felt like there wasn't enough of a connection that people made to the two. And I was wondering, maybe the connection doesn't exist, but when it comes out that the country, Afghanistan, is said to be the source of over 90 percent of the world's opium, not heroin now, but opium, the base that is used to make uh, heroin, but also the base that's used to make opioid-based pharmaceuticals, I, I do think there is a connection to be made. And I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of insight into that connection. Yeah, sure, Jackie. Um, I think, you know, the can, the, there's certainly a a, a a clear correlation between the numbers when you look at the, the, the rise of opioid production out of Afghanistan and the devastating impact that the opioid epidemic has had on not only Americans, but all around the world. But just focusing on Americans for the moment, um, you know, you can just look at the CDC website that publishes a lot of this a lot of these statistics and, you know, the, the timelines match up. Um, and, you know, I think that speaks in large part to the, the connections that are there. Um, you know, just talking about prescription opioids now, um, the CDC website report that from 1999 to 2019, you know, gets basically the, the matches up with the 20 year and occupation of uh, Afghanistan that nearly 247,000 people have died in the United States from overdoses involving prescription opioids. Um, And it's a a rate that more than quadrupled from 1999 to 2019. Just in 2019, there were 14,000 deaths from opioid, uh, from prescription opioid overdoses, that's 38 people a day. Um, and 
the other publicly available information on the uh, opioid epidemic, particularly the prescription opioid ep- epidemic, uh, it shows that by 2014, there were nearly 2 million Americans either abusing opioid medications or who were dependent on opioids. Um, and that's not, in, that's not in counting the other, uh, you know, heroin-involved overdose deaths, which is a separate category that the, the CDC keeps track of. And, you know, from the same 20-year period, 1999 to 2019, um, heroin-involved overdose deaths in the U.S., increased seven times from 2,000 people in 1999 to 14,000 people in, in 2019. Um, and, the, you know, it goes on and on. You, there's a lot of statistics out there that, that are publicly available, fairly easy to access. And uh, the, the, the correlation, if it's not connection, is striking. Yeah. You know, and to be clear, Afghanistan is not the only place in the world where opium is produced. It's not the only place in the world where poppies are grown for the production of opium for the specific purpose of making heroin. Mexico is is also one of the significant contributors to opium that ends up in the United States as heroin. But I think to be clear, Mexico is not the only place where that happens. If it's also true that Afghanistan produces 90 percent of the opium to the entire world, you know, so how do you see, uh, Zach, the U.S. policy in Afghanistan contributing to the increase in poppy production in the country? I mean, because if we remember Operation Cyclone poured billions of dollars into Afghanistan in 1979. And at that time, poppy production wasn't that significant in the country. So, I mean, can you can you give us uh, uh, an overview of the connection between the CIA involvement in Afghanistan in 1979 and this transition to poppy production uh, that exploded in the country since then? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point, Jackie. It's, it's, it's not just Opium production didn't did not start in the U.S. occupation in 2001. Um, it started back in you know 1979 and and the 80s and 90s when the CIA was funding this secret war in Afghanistan. Um, and at that point, opium production, uh, particularly along the Afghanistan-Pakistan border, it, it surged. In that 10-year period, between the 80s and 90s, uh, opium production in Afghanistan went from 100 tons a year to 2,000 tons per year. Um, And at that point, it was already around 75% of the world's illicit opium trade. Um, And it's important to note that at that time in the 80s, heroin addiction reportedly more than doubled in the United States. So we can already see the correlation of CIA involvement in um, Afghanistan, opium production there, and then heroin addiction uh, coming back to to plague the United States. 
And, you know, not only was the impact of all of this money that was poured into the country reflected in the increase in this one crop, because remember, it wasn't just money. It was money that was used to fund war. So, you know, people's livelihoods were destroyed. Um, People's farmers, farmland was destroyed. So people didn't have anything much left uh, to make uh, money with other than to grow the one thing that, oddly enough, the United States military, the CIA-backed forces and and, and mercenaries wouldn't bomb. The, The one crop that they wouldn't bomb, and that was opium. So that was really interesting. I think it's very important that we make that point. But then, you know, Zach, I'm wondering if in the United States, as we see in the late 70s, the early 80s, the heroin problem increase at the same time that the CIA is getting involved in Afghanistan, was there an increase in response to, you know, treatment for people who were suffering from heroin addiction? Was there any part of U.S policy uh, that was a, a a counteracting force to, well, you know, we're putting all this money into Afghanistan and what's happening is we've destroyed their livelihood and now they're only growing poppy and that's producing all of this heroin or opium that's flooding the market around the world. And now we have an increase in heroin addiction in the United States. Let's divert some of this money to help these people in this country That is, some people would call it an unintended consequence. I don't. But let's divert some of this money to help some of those people as a result of this unintended consequence of our involvement in this country that we shouldn't even be in. I I don't think so. I I I, I haven't seen anything to suggest that the U.S. in its beneficence decided to to help alleviate some of the burdens on, on, on the people that are suffered as a result of its policies, you know, except to say that I think that around, around that time in the eighties, you, you see the rise of the, you know, the so-called war on drugs and the just say no to drugs movement. And so, you know, there were a lot of funds and, and, you know, taxpayer funds that were, were pumped into those kinds of programs, which, you know, had the uh, result, whether they intended or not, of, of likely backfiring and, you know, we, we've seen at, at that time the rise in the drug trafficking in, in Latin America and and the uh, the CIA's involvement with crack cocaine in the United States, uh, in Los Angeles in particular. So, um, you know, this was it, it led to unmitigated disasters, uh, you know, not only in Afghanistan, uh, but also Latin America in the United States. And I, I don't think that the the, the the proceeds from these the illicit drug sales were being used to to benefit the people that were were suffering from them. Absolutely, and you know we're not just talking about the effect here in the United States, but also in Afghanistan, because according to reports, between 2005 and 2015, the number of adult drug users in Afghanistan jumped from 900,000 to 2.4 million that and that's according to the United Nations which estimates that almost 1 in 3 households in Afghanistan are directly affected by addiction and you know opioids just they don't just happen to be the drug of choice for most in a country in which 
opioid production is really the only stable crop. And, you know, in the last decade alone, opioid-related deaths increased by 71% globally, also according to the United Nations. Much of the product grown by Afghan warlords actually ends up on Western streets, even though, Zach, the DEA and other folks will claim that all of the illicit opioids that are entering the U.S. are grown in Latin America. And they usually, like I said earlier, name Mexico. However, the United Nations points out that when you look at the information on the DEA's own website and in their own reports on illicit opioid production and the landmass needed to produce it in Mexico and South America, it doesn't add up to being enough to produce the demand that exists for all of the illicit opiates in the United States alone. So I think that's why it's important that we have this conversation, that we stop focusing on, you know, the, the, the drug cartels and the kingpins like Pablo Escobar uh, that were the focus of U.S., as you said, war on drugs efforts from 2002 and 2006. You know, but I'm wondering how do we pivot this conversation about opioid addiction, especially now, Zach, since the pharmaceutical companies that pushed a lot of prescription opioids that fueled the current opioid crisis we have now are basically getting off with paying a small fine and they're not going to lose any of their profits. Nobody's going to go to jail. Afghanistan is completely in shambles. Um, Mexico is still being destabilized by the United States and its policies. And people who are struggling with opioid addiction in this country are getting no help. How do we shift the conversation about Afghanistan in particular? to include these issues of how the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan affected people in the United States in the area of substance abuse addiction? Yeah, it's a, it's a, great, it's a great question. Um, and I, I think overall, the question is, you know, how do you, how can you uh, discuss and, and relate back the, the, the ills of imperialism in one country um, to other countries around the world, and, and including within the United States, because these connections are all there. Um, you know, I think that it's we should try to correct and make clear the narratives of events in Afghanistan um, as much as we can, um, and it should include what we know about the, the opium production. And the, the timeline is, you know, it's it, it's somewhat. It's somewhat simple and I think fairly compelling when, when you see the, the, the surge of opium production in Afghanistan in the 80s and 90s when the CIA started funding um, the, you know, the Mujahideen um, in Afghanistan. And then in, in the 90s in Afghanistan, there was the, the civil war um, after the U.S., you know, at least nominally had, had left. Um, and, that, and that's when opium production really became, uh, where Afghanistan became dependent on opium production. But then interestingly, and this is a point I think is, is worth pointing out uh, when, when discussing the history of, of the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, is that in 2000, um, the Taliban, they, who at, at that point um, became the, the dominant force in Afghanistan, they 
they actually um, they imposed a ban on opium production uh, in what is reported that was a, an attempt to gain international legitimacy. Um, and, and this led to an almost overnight drop of opium production to just 185 tons um, of, of opium harvested in the next year. It's a reduction of, of about 90%. So this is about the levels that they were, 185 tons is you know, about what they were doing, Afghanistan was doing before the CIA was involved in the 80s. Then, uh, as, we know, as we know, September 11th happened, and in October 2001, that's when the U.S. invades Afghanistan, and you know the effect of that occupation was to expand the, the drug production to unprecedented levels, um, and that's what we're seeing, and that's what we're seeing now. So you, you can, you know, the timeline is Taliban stops, they, they impose a ban on opium production, CIA invades using 9-11 as a pretext, you know, several months later. And, you know, I guess the, the rest is the tragic history. Yeah, that, that is definitely a fact. And, and just to, you know, give people a few data points, the Vienna-based UN Office on Drugs and Crime reveals that poppy cultivation in 2012 extended in Afghanistan over an area of more than 154,000 hectares, not acres, but hectares. And a, a hectare is 100 acres. So that was an increase of 18 percent over 2011. And the UNODC spokesperson confirmed in 2013 that opium production was headed toward record levels then. And as we have discussed, it has reached those record levels. And as we've seen on the streets in our own country and some of us, many of us listening have experienced the devastation of substance and opioid abuse and addiction. We've seen the war in Afghanistan, the U.S. involvement, invasion and occupation in Afghanistan, a country thousands of miles away, show up on our doorsteps. War absolutely impacts our everyday lives. But I want to thank you so much, Zach Kerner, for joining us today. We're out of time for this segment, but we will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the continued attacks by the U.S. on Huawei executives that's playing out in Canadian court. And for this conversation, we're happy to be joined by K.J. No, a geopolitical analyst, a member of Veterans for Peace and a senior correspondent with Flashpoints on KPFA. K.J., thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. A pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. Now, this situation with this case against 
Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou is still going on. And honestly, KJ, there'd been so much going on around the world that it kind of slipped off my radar. But apparently what's going on now is that a Canadian judge who is overseeing the extradition case of uh, Wanzhou back to the U.S. has raised some questions about the validity of the cause for extradition. So I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of insight into what's going on in this Canadian court. Yes, absolutely. I think the first thing to emphasize is that the arrest and detain of uh, Meng Wanzhou was a political kidnapping by the Trump administration. It was really for two reasons. One is they wanted to use Meng Wanzhou, who is the CEO, uh, CFO of Huawei, as a pawn in their trade war. And they explicitly came out and said that. The second piece of it is that Huawei uh, at the time was probably the largest telecoms uh, corporation in the world. And what they were doing is they were building out servers and uh, internet backbone that was impervious to U.S. Uh, surveillance. That is, you know, it was disrupting the U.S. electronic panopticon. And so they decided to take a Huawei CFO as a hostage in order to, you know, force, uh, uh, you know, force uh, favorable terms on their trade negotiations, but also to break the back and to break the morale of, uh, of Huawei itself. Now, the case has dragged on for almost two years now, but essentially we're in the final stretches. And the Canadian judge, who has been very, very prejudicial against Huawei, has finally seems to finally have turned around a little bit. And she's essentially pointing out that the case that they concocted against Huawei, that somehow Meng Wanzhou had uh, defrauded HSBC into violating sanctions, U.S. sanctions against Iran, she's pointing out that fraud case doesn't, doesn't obtain, that there was a, clearly there was no lying to HSBC, and there was no harm to HSBC. Fraud is uh, lies plus harm. And she's saying none of that, none of that happened. So what is your case? Uh, and uh, prosecuting uh, attorneys are, 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 have no response to that. Yeah. And, and, you know, just to give a little bit more background on this case regarding uh, the sanctions against Iran that HSBC, the mega bank and Huawei and an associated company in Iran called Skycom was supposedly colluded to uh, avoid that actually couldn't have happened. And even I think the court found that it couldn't have happened at least not the way the U.S. claimed it did because of the due diligence that was done by HSBC in vetting their customers like they normally do. So, I mean, the entire case against Huawei and Ming Wanzhou was all really about Iran, not really about any fraud, not really about anything other than, you know, anything that the U.S. DOJ under Donald Trump claimed that Ming actually did. It was all about Iran. Is that pretty much the case, uh, KJ? Yes, that's exactly correct. So remember, the U.S. uh, had uh, levied sanctions on Iran, and these sanctions are a violation 
of international law. Uh, you don't get to levy unilateral sanctions. But more than that, Canada itself had no sanctions on Iran. In fact, it encourages its corporations to do business with Iran. So get this. I mean, it almost sounds like the setup for a joke. But you have a Chinese national who is uh, meeting with a, a British bank in Hong Kong, and she's traveling through Canada, which has no sanctions against Iran, and she's essentially arrested under fraudulent circumstances uh, uh, for violating U.S. sanctions on Iran. That whole story uh, stinks to high heaven. It, there's no way uh, that that could be upheld in any court of law. You cannot uh, arrest uh, the nationals of a third party for violating rules that of your country that are illegal. It would be like uh, it would be like Singapore uh, asking Meng Wanzhou to be arrested for chew, for for selling chewing gum, uh, you know, in in Pakistan. It's, it's just absurd. But because they knew this court, uh, this case could not uh, be upheld. What they did was they created this fraudulent case that somehow Huawei, through Meng Wanzhou, had defrauded HSBC into violating U.S. sanctions on Iran. If that sounds contorted, it is. And the way they did it was they created this idea that Huawei had lied to uh, HSBC. Clearly they didn't, as you point out. Uh, Huawei is has a uh, uh, Huawei uh, has been a 15-year client of HSBC uh, and one of their top 10 clients, and they are in, and HSBC has a, a risk committee that goes over these things. They knew exactly what they were getting into, and at no point was it shown that Huawei had actually misled HSBC into what they were doing in Iran. The judge herself pointed that out. Uh, and then, uh, but based on the fact that some of the money uh, had transited through U.S. servers through a dollar clearing transaction, the U.S. claimed jurisdiction to prosecute. And then this was the claim that somehow that there was fraud uh, and this fraud could have resulted in risk of harm to HSBC. Therefore, there was a case. Well, the fact is there was no harm, there was no fraud, and there was no illegality, either as, uh, as under the you know, pretext of fraud or under the pretext of sanctions. There is no case. Uh, and yet the U.S. is still holding on, the Canadians are still holding on, uh, and this has destroyed relations between China and Canada. Yeah. And the judge in question, who actually has been, you know, characterized as, as pretty compliant with U.S. actions in this case, Associate Chief Justice Heather Holmes of the British Columbia Supreme Court, actually said that she she questioned whether the bank HSBC should be considered a victim or an accomplice. She wasn't she couldn't figure out what what role the bank had in this, especially since this case is actually hinged on alleged misstatements in a 
PowerPoint presentation that Meng presented to HSBC officials in a meeting in a private room in a Hong Kong restaurant in August 2013. Now, I, I don't know about you, KJ, but I really would love to know how the U.S. officials got that presentation. And I'd like to, <laughs> that just, that's a huge question for me right there. But then when we look at the fact that HSBC, as we said earlier, would have already conducted full know-your-customer and anti-money laundering due diligence on every customer they had because that's just the law. And I'm, you know, not at all defending HSBC. They've got other problems that they need to deal with. But it, it just didn't make any sense that they would violate any kind of major law in this manner in the way that the U.S. claims that they did for, you know, an account that they they were with a company that were already doing business with in the first place. So, you know, even with this judge's ruling and the completely, you know, spurious nature of the claims that the judge is even pointing out, it, do, does it seem that... Ming will still be extradited to the U.S.? You know, that's the $64,000 question, Jackie, and I don't have a crystal ball. What I noticed over the two years of this case was that every time there was probative evidence of Ming's innocence, of Huawei's innocence, the judge would always clap it down. The first was the issue of double criminality. Is, you know, is it still uh, a crime in, in Canada if Canada has no sanctions against uh, Iran because all the uh, fraud risk is related to sanctions? And she said, well, yes, we have to import the U.S. context into Canadian law. That's absurd. It's an abs- absurd uh, you know, legal precedent that destroys Canadian uh, jurisprudence. But you know, will she, has she finally seen the light? You know, will she, uh, you know, uh, reject this demand for extradition by the United States? It's unclear. You know, clearly the line of questioning that she's doing now is what she should have been doing two years ago. All the facts were already there. Uh, you know, uh, we also know very clearly that the United States, when it uh, claimed that the PowerPoint uh, which was most likely handed over by HSBC to the United States because HSBC is currently under investigation by the U.S. So they, you know, they were flipped by the U.S. Uh, prosecution for other violations. Uh, Huawei was able to show that the PowerPoint that the U.S. and the Canadian government submitted uh, had had several slides uh, omitted, namely 16 and 26, which showed that Huawei had been telling the truth about its transactions in Iran. So the fact is there was no lie, uh, there was no fraud, but will the judge finally come around? There are two theories about it. One is that she's signaling signaling that she's so disgusted with the case that she will have to overturn it, reject the request for extradition. The other theory is that, you know, judges like to cover their rear and they like to give us a, a final show of having taken everything into consideration before they finally render their judgment. It's very possible that she will say, well, you know, there's all this evidence. There is no case. 
but it's not my job to adjudicate the evidence. That can be done in a fair trial in the United States when I send her over. And as far as I'm concerned, I can wash my hands of this whole thing. So that may also be what is going on right now. And it's very interesting, KJ, in the last two minutes that we have here, that officials or or executives with Skycom or the intermediary holding company, Canicula, are not involved in this action at all. Why is that, do you think? Um, Because, you know, there is no case against them, uh, like there is no case against Huawei. But the key thing is that the U.S. wanted to take down Huawei. It's been trying to do that for over 15 years because it poses a threat to U.S. technological dominance, but it also is building out uh, a, a 5G internet system that is impervious to U.S. surveillance. So that's uh, the first reason. Uh, but also, you know, the, the big stakes really have to do with the fact that the U.S. is waging hybrid war against China. The U.S. is currently building uh, a case for war through information warfare against China and Huawei and Meng Wanzhou and uh, that all of this fits a larger pattern of, we, of what we call lawfare or legal warfare. Uh, it's a kind of hybrid warfare to hobble and dis- disable uh, your enemy before the bombs start dropping. Mm, yeah, just another spoke in the multi-pronged warfare wheel that the United States is continuing to roll against China. But we're out of time for this segment. Want to thank KJ No so much for joining us. We will be right back. You're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lupon, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Well, it's Friday, folks, so it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, co-host of Red Spin Sports. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, glad to be back. So, Nate, you know, I was under the impression that minor league players were living in poverty and grinding on the minor league circuit to get chosen to move up to the big leagues. And I've believed that for so long, but you're telling me that's not true. Well, it is, it it is true. And honestly, even worse ways than people like, you know, thought for years. I mean, it's, it's no secret that, um, you know, minor league baseball players uh, first of all, they don't fly anywhere. They ride everywhere on buses. Mm. Um, and then what's happened since COVID is they used to have programs where um, you would have hosts, basically, like families, kind of like a sponsor and exchange student type thing that would host the player and let and that would take care of their housing. Well, with the pandemic, they they scrapped that. So what's happening now is you have players that are signing leases at places and then 
they get traded. See, the thing is, like in baseball, they have a farm system where it's the single A, the rookie lead, single A, double A, triple A. It's kind of like going around the bases. And if you get the, you know, the majors, that's like hitting the home run, basically. But what happens is, uh, you know, players get the players who do make the majors suddenly look at it as like a rite of passage. We have to go through and whatnot. Totally like whether they just don't care or just don't, you know, um, or you know, whether it's just a matter of not caring or a matter of just not really understanding it, that, that like, you know, 90% of the players probably, you know, aren't going to make it to the big leagues. So you're having athletic labor essentially work for below minimum wage. And then let's, I just mentioned the housing thing. I mean, that is, that's wild because if you get traded as part of like, say a deal where um, a big league club trades a big, they're not doing well like the Washington nationals there in DC, they traded, you know, all their big time players from that 2019 world series team. And they got a bunch of minor league prospects back. Well, that affects these players down the line who are developmental, who are then suddenly traded to another minor league team. Well, what if they just signed a lease somewhere, you know, and then they can't ha- be hosted. They're getting paid. Like we're talking MLB's making a big deal about upping their pay to we're talking like $500 every two weeks. Like, and that's, that's somehow it's supposed to be a big, a big jump. And, um, and it's all in the, the guys. I mean, like, the thing is, think about it. Look at this. The society we live in, how precarious financial situations are for people. It, it, you tell anybody you got a bit 10, 10, 15% chance of making it to the major leagues and being a millionaire, they're gonna they're gonna run with it and think I'm gonna be that 10, 15%. But what happens when you're not and then you you've you know you can't really take care of your family, you're sitting there driving Uber and Lyft while you're playing baseball and, and you're you're every single day throwing, you know, your pitcher throwing working your arm. I mean, all sorts of things going on. And the MLB has this exemption from the Sherman Act, antitrust exemption that allows them to basically pay below minimum wage. And it gets at the heart of the idea of what athletic labor and the way, you know, the business class, the capitalist class in this country has like consistently tried to just frame it as just play. You know, playing sports is just a form of play. It's like, you know, it's a childish thing you go through growing up to kind of develop into manhood or womanhood. And um, and that is. And by doing that and framing it that way, you you clearly paint it as not being like work in the sense of how most people think about it. Like as if it doesn't have value, something that people go and take their kids to and have a great time. These minor league ballparks, you know, a lot of fans derive a great deal of, of pleasure and enjoyment and family experiences from going and watching these ball games. But yet they um, by not having a union either because the, these minor league players are not under MLBPA. Um, they essentially don't really have any bargaining power. And the fact Congress has given Major League Baseball exemptions from the Sherman Act and antitrust exemptions, it's really, really wild. I mean, so the media and the former Major League Baseball players who are pushing back on this, they're they're not saying that, no, you know, these minor league players aren't being paid peanuts. They're all right. They're actually pushing back against the status quo that, they are living in poverty, trying to make it in the minor leagues and basically being exploited, mm-hmm. their talent and labor being exploited. So, I mean, what are some of the things that former Major League Baseball players are saying that's given exposure to this issue? Sure. Well, one I'll highlight is Doug Glanville. Doug Glanville is a New Jersey native, played college baseball at the University of Pennsylvania and played nine years in Major League Baseball. And he's writing for The Athletics now. and. Um, does uh, I mean, I think has been really good on this issue. He talks about how as a player, 
you, when you make it to the big leagues, you finally get there. You, you have a tendency to look at it as sort of a rite of passage, like going through a fraternity, like initiation process, you know, a pledge ship or something. And that that and, and it works, I guess, to frame it like that. If you make it to the big leagues, now there's also a distinction where players that are drafted, all right, if they're from the U.S., you can be drafted out of high school. And the higher you're drafted, you can get a big, they call them bonus babies because players in the minors, there's some there's some players that have gotten pretty big signing bonuses, sometimes in the millions too. Um, and even so that, that mitigates it for those players because they have that money in the bank. But then you have other issues where, you know, the international players, guys in the DR, guys in, in you know, Puerto Rico, Venezuela, you know, they don't go through the draft like that. And they're, de- they're definitely, in terms of the bonus system, typically aren't going to be getting the same level of bonus money. So then they're essentially trying to live off of that and having to work all sorts of like wild side hustles um, while they're doing a full-time job. And mind you, they're traveling on buses throughout play, <laughs> throughout the country, sleeping on these buses. There, there's you, you can look up on YouTube even and see like in um, you know, videos of minor league players looking at where they're living. They're sleeping on floors, sleeping on couches, you know, kind of pulling together. And you think of it in the way we think of, of you know of professional athletes and, you know, the, the, you know, so always portrayed as kind of glamorous lifestyle. But the idea that you have to kind of pay this rite of passage in order to to get there is wild. And it's really encouraging to see Doug Glanville using his platform now. He actually wrote a piece about this a couple of years ago in The Athletic, and he's been steadily doing that consistent, you know, going forward into the present now. And you, and because of his activism and some other players too, and um, other voices that, that are, you know, really care about this issue, it's finally getting coverage in the media. Um, and it brings us to another issue, which is this uh, issue of a uh, you know, the big league advance, which I don't know we can get into, I guess, next. It kind of ties into this from the point of exploitation. Yeah, but, yeah, because this this yeah. is definitely a, a case of, I, I feel like this is it's like, a, 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 it's almost akin to the way we look at the stock market or in a weird way, cryptocurrency. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like it's this big financial gamble that we take. And, and literally, people are investing on minor league baseball players. They are investors. But the big league investors who, you know, and 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 it's I guess the company is called Big League Advance that pays minor league players in advance for a stake in future major league baseball contracts. They're, and they say they're willing to do this because this is the quote from the company. They say we're probably going to lose money on about 60, 70 maybe 80% of the players we invest in. But we still think we can make money because on the players that we do invest in that make it big, it's like a lottery ticket. Mm -hmm. They could produce 50 times the returns. I... That reducing human beings down to lottery tickets is obscene to me, Nate. But I, I don't know. What are you? What's your take on this? Yeah. So it comes with this guy, Michael Schwimmer, who like, came up in the Philadelphia Phillies organization, made it to the big leagues for a few years, um, and then the injuries kind of cut it short. But they portrayed themselves as being, you know, it, 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 this is the conundrum, right? Within capitalism, is that in reality, because of this, like extremely exploitative system and the poverty wages that are paid um, minor league baseball players, it, it creates the space where a lot of them actually need advances like this. So a company like this, while saying they're, they're, they're disgusted with the system, it's totally unfair. Well, if the system were to change, that would kind of put them out of business. So it's not 
their solution, it's funny because if you really cared that much, you seem like you'd use your resources and, you know, fight and, and, and be bringing awareness and, and trying to, you know, become an activist and, and do everything you can to leverage power and organize. But that's not what it is. It's like saying that you identify this it's site of exploitation and I'm able to go raise money from billionaire investors, other wealthy investors. They, of course, are not just investing money for charity. They say that up front. They're not like like tricking the players necessarily, but they're just offering them something that players like they interview a guy who's a catcher for the White Sox, uh, less than uh, Mercedes, and he and he like you know had to take out I think a hundred sixty five thousand dollar loan, and then now for the remainder of his career, they're getting fifteen percent of all his earnings, and that's because he has a big family in the Dominican Republic, and he had immediate financial needs to help support them. And so they are able to exploit that. And it's a really a perfect just encapsulation of like where we are in this neoliberal capitalist epoch we're living in, because what what better representation of that? The idea that you can offer something some of people need, but the only reason they need it so desperately is because they're being so hyper exploited. Yeah. You know, and speaking of uh, the times we're in. I, I think it's never a bad time to say unpleasant things about Brett Favre. <laughs> I, I really just don't because it's Brett Favre. <laughs> and, you know, Favre has been really outspoken on a lot of things that, you know, were really bad. But he he actually came out on a sort of good way speaking out about uh, CTE. And he says in a new PSA that he urges parents not to let their kids play tackle football until they're 14, warning that the longer a kid plays tackle football, the likelier they are to develop CTE. Now, that's that's great. OK, that's great. But that's also weird coming from Brett Favre, who also had bizarre anti-science comments about COVID and the vaccine. So mm-hmm. I I don't know where to come down on, you know, with with Brett Favre. I, I like to just, you know, say, OK, I'll give him credit for this one. But normally he's just a mess. But, you know. No. Yeah. No, he is. And I mean, it's, it's gotten worse and worse. Let's not forget about his takes on, you know, the Black Lives Matter stuff was going right. on with Colin Kaepernick, and then the way that um, he was just like, you know, ridiculously making this assertion uh, that, like, you know, he wants to just keep football this pure space of apolitical gamesmanship, right? Of just boys being boys out there competing on the gridiron, as if it's ever just been that way. I mean, like, we talked about this many times, but you look at all the jingoism that goes on before games, during games, you know. Like it, it, it's on steroids. I mean, not just the flyovers, but the family reunions they have where the family's out there. Then they surprise them with their, you know, their um, their husband or father coming out of the tunnel with you know, they didn't know. And that somehow that that's not politics. Right. So it's not about politics. But for Brett Favre, it's like, you know, deeply uncomfortable with the kind of politics that he's uncomfortable with being injected into the game that he doesn't like. So, I mean, but on this issue, like, I mean, I guess you got to take the the good with the bad in the sense of like, if he's actually going to speak out on this, it's, um, he does actually have a platform and there's people that will listen to Brett Favre that won't listen to you and I, right. Because of like the kind of political divide. So he maybe has a way of reaching, you know, parents of kids that otherwise it was coming from somebody on the left or like an activist scene, they would look at it and just dismiss it as like, you know, pansy, El Pinto, lefties, you know, don't understand things, but hopefully coming from Brett Favre, they might realize, wow, Brett Favre, the Iron Man, you know, Football is actually saying this and 
maybe it's something I need to pay attention to. So I, that's kind of how I see it. You know what would be great, Nate, if Brett Favre would take his newfound respect in science uh, in regard to CTE and uh, use it to advocate for those black football players whose retirement and disability cases were denied because they, you know, have lower brain activity or development or whatever, but they actually had CTE and they needed help. That would be great, but I'm not holding my breath for Brett Favre to do that. Yeah, I don't think I don't think you should. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. But as usual, we never have enough time for the Red Spin Report. We are out of time. I want to thank Nate Wallace for another great segment this week. We will be back. We're at the end of the hour also. So we'll be back with a whole nother hour. You're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. We are back, my friends. Aluta continua. Victoria Acerta, the struggle continues. Victory is certain. It is Friday, finally. August 20th, 2021. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you so you can give us a call and tell us what's on your mind. But that is not the only way you can reach out and touch us here at the show at 3.20 p.m. Of course, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also hit us up on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at BAM necessary. Then our shows can be downloaded on iTunes, where we would very much appreciate a good rating from you. You can hear us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and lots of other podcast platforms. You can listen to us live on SputnikNews.com and on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And at the top of the hour, I must report that Joseph Biden did deliver some more remarks about the troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. And my thoughts are that, you know, he took his medication, read the script okay. Uh, Kamala Harris stood there like the empty bourgeois political symbol that she is. Anthony Blinken stood on the other side of him, looking like a skinny Mike Pompeo, who looks better in a suit, but the warmongering and imperialism in the suit is exactly the same. But those are my thoughts on the whole thing this afternoon. But I am curious to hear what our guests' thoughts are, because I am happy to be joined by Kalanji Jamachanga, who is not an undercover brother at all, author, filmmaker, community organizer, co-host of the Renegade Culture podcast, co-founder of Black Power Media, and founder of the FTP movement. Kalanji, thanks for joining me, brother. I think we may have lost Kalanji for a second. 
Weird things are happening. There's storms going all throughout the country. We just had a pretty bad storm here in D.C., so that's why I wore my nice little tropical dress to brighten the mood a little bit uh, in the studio. Yeah, but I got to tell you, this whole, you know, I, I don't need Joseph Biden to make comments and statements about every stage of this horrifically chaotic withdrawal. And and again, I have to point out once again that the criticism of Biden is not that the withdrawal should not happen. It's the way that the withdrawal is being carried out. But again, you know, I think I think we got Kalanji back, the not at all undercover brother. So Kalanji, are you there? Hey, I'm happy to hear I'm not an undercover <laughs> with that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's a good start. <laughs> that is a good start. I mean, you know, we we had to acknowledge the 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 remarks from Biden. And and I was just saying, Kalanji, that, you know, I just wish this whole withdrawal thing would just play out, get it over with, get it done, as chaotic as it's gonna be, because the U.S. government and the military didn't really plan the way they should have. They should have never been there in the first place. The criticism isn't about whether the withdrawal should happen or not. Of course, it, it should. The criticism is, of course, that the United States, under the Biden administration in particular, has made this more chaotic than it needed to be. But I swear, man, this dude, he just keeps making speeches about how badly this thing is going. And I just wish he'd stop. Man, this dude right here, man, it's, it's like, you know, it, we, we grew up from, um, I, I guess we could say bad to worse because of the fact that at least um, with Trump, he was uh, he was clear. Like, look, I'm an idiot. That's how we're going to do this thing, and that's what it is. But Biden tries to shift and act like he got some swag, like everything's cool. Like, we will get him out of here, and we are the number one. Uh, you know what I'm saying? On this game. And it's sad because of the fact that um, they announced about a week or two ago that, you know, by the end of the month, this whole thing would be, you know, that the, the Taliban would be taking over and so on and so forth. So you already knew that. So now it's like the scrambling after effect. And it's, you know, it's unfortunate. But, you know, yeah, troops will be left behind. Mm, the troops and people who, you know, had really and it's such a messed up situation because I almost can't even be mad at the people who you know, worked for the U.S. military because the United States has been bombing these people's country for decades. So what else left did they have to do to make a living? I mean, it's just such a messed up situation. And there's no easy way to extricate this country's military from that. Yeah, it's just just get out and just stop talking about it and just get out. I mean, because honestly, Kalanji, there is other stuff going on in the world. I mean, believe it or not, there are other things happening in the world. And thankfully, one of those things is Black August. That's going on in our world, in our revolutionary world. And it it should really be a wider focus on the goals and aims of Black August, especially since, you know, 400 years ago in August 1619 on and, and the History books always point to on or around August 20th. So they're not even sure what day the first enslaved Africans were brought to the first English settlement in what is now called the United Snakes uh, 400 years ago. And that place is called Fort Comfort. And you can actually go there. I've actually not been. And I, and I, I endeavor to go there one day just to see what kind of 
memorial or what what they say about the Africans who were brought there. But, you know, Black August is embarked upon by us radicals every year to commemorate the fallen freedom fighters of the Black liberation movement, all our political prisoners and the folks who came before us, our forerunners who fought this fight for liberation before us and passed the baton on to us. So our job is to call for the release of political prisoners in the U.S. and around the world now to condemn oppressive conditions in U.S. prisons to continue to highlight the importance of the ongoing Black liberation struggle. And of course, you know, like we always say, to study fast, train, and fight. And this is connected to George Jackson and so much more history. But how, Kalanji, do we keep this Black August commemoration observation alive when honestly, I I just got to be honest, there's so much going on, so much coming at us. And and I'm not going to say it's more coming at us than usual, but there is, it, it does seem like the empire is on its death throes. It's on the ropes. So it's fighting back harder and it's fighting back against the folks that are trying to beat it into submission. So we're feeling the effects of it. So how do we keep the Black August commemoration tradition observation alive, even as we're exhausted in this fight that we have to keep going? Well, first off, I start off by saying Black August resistance and mm. response is long live the dragon. Long live the dragon. Also, along with that, I like to say Siafu, because Siafu are the worker ants. So, you know what I'm saying? If you consider yourself a working ant or a freedom fighter or a revolutionary, the call is Siafu, and the response is People's Army. Mm. Okay, so that's first and foremost. Um, how do we keep it alive? And I'm glad you asked that because of the fact that Black August is not just about the month. It's yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's about resistance. Resistance is the most important part of it, and of course, black resistance. And it it should be all year. Um, we should be just like uh, Biden talking about bringing home the troops. We should be talking about supporting our troops. These political prisoners, these freedom fighters, these are our troops. If we're going to be talking about reparations, then reparations. The first order of reparations should be to or give us our troops back. Then we can negotiate. Then we can talk about land. We can talk about all that other stuff. But the reality is the political prisoners are those who come first. Now, why do I say that? Some folks like, well, you know, uh, maybe they did it. And what about, it's not a question of guilt and innocence or innocence. The first thing you said was that enslaved Africans were brought here about 400 years ago uh, this month, right? So that means that we've been at war. These people have kidnapped us. They've taken us and they've uh, taken our land and they've taken, they've taken our very minds. You know what I mean? So the first order of operation should be to get those people back who are thinkers. Now, if they have engaged, they engage in war or if they did anything that they said was done, then um, we sure that it was done in the rightful manner. We can't have it both ways. We can't say, look, uh, you know, uh, we, we want to know what were they charged with. You understand what I'm saying? That's not the that's not the case here. The case is these are freedom fighters. We talk about revolution, and when it comes to revolution, certain things have to take place. It has to be revolt. It has to be a revolt, and you're not going to revolt by just reading. You're not going to revolt by just talking trash. You got to stand up. You got to train. You got to exercise. You got to be healthy. You know what I mean? You got to get that. Uh, you know, exercise your quote unquote Second Amendment. You know what I mean? You got to do what needs to be done. And is that calling on violence? No. I mean, you know, self-preservation is the first law. 
You have to be able to defend yourself. You have to be able to defend your family and your community and so on and so forth. You know, it, it gets um, uh, overwhelming sometimes, like you said, because of the fact that it seems like we're being hit with so many different things from so many different positions. But once we consolidate, we'll recognize and realize that we're up against imperialism. So the fight is against imperialism. So whether you're fighting for the environment or you're fighting for uh, equal rights or if you're fighting for the land or for um, uh, free health care or whatever the situation is, you're fighting imperialism. So all targets, imperialism should be the target. Not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm anti-death penalty, but I'm pro-death penalty. And I mean, I mean, I mean, we have to get this thing, we have to get our priorities straight. You know what I mean? So Black August um, and, and how do we move on and move forward with it, it is a natural thing. It's, it's as easy as breathing air, breathing oxygen. You know what I mean? It is, it is our life. It is our livelihood. It is our survival. So Black August resistance means, uh, in a nutshell, um, you know, fighting for our liberation, man, to, to, to be free. Yeah. Back again, that's what, that's, that's what we have to do. Yeah, that, that, that is absolutely a fact. And, you know, I, I have to be honest. I, I was not as focused on the, you know, living healthy part before in years previously as I am now and you know middle age will change your your perspective on health in ways that you know you you didn't realize they would until you you start to have difficulty you know standing up when you get out of bed in the morning and they tell you the doctors tell you you have arthritis and then all of a sudden taking care of your health becomes more important but I'll never forget something that brother Eddie Conway said to me one time, every time he saw me when I would work with him, I would always have like a, a cup of coffee and a donut. And he told me one day, if I see you come in here one more day with that donut, you and I are going to have words. And I was like, what are you talking about? Because I thought he's, he was saying some things about my weight. You know how we, we're sensitive, Kalanji. We, we ladies in our weight. So, you know, but he said, sister, we need you in this struggle. We need everybody in this struggle. And we can't afford for our freedom fighters of today to be broken down and sick because right. we're going to be fighting for a long time. And that stuck with me. That man said that to me like four years ago. I have not had a donut for breakfast since. Now, I mean, th this is the kind of camaraderie and care in the movement uh, and among us radicals that I think we do need, especially, you know, Kalanji, when you talked about how when people respond, when we say, look, give us our people back from this prison system, give our people back, let our people go if we're talking about fighting for liberation. And the first thing folks ask is, well, what did they do? Well, I mean, how, how in the world are people who are OK with folks like the dude who was just arrested or turned himself in? for claiming that he was going to blow the Capitol up, but he was parked in front of, like, the Library of Congress. He had a record, but the media presented his record as, well, you know, it was just a few minor. He didn't have much of a record. The, the media in D.C. actually presented his, his criminal record in that way. He didn't have much of a record, just a larceny charge and a resisting police officer's charge, you know, but we've got the anniversary tomorrow of George Jackson's 
assassination in prison, August 21, 1971, who went to prison, who was sent to prison in the first place because he allegedly stole $70 from a gas station. So, I mean, how in the world do we respond, Kalanji, to folks who come at us with that question, which I feel like is incredibly insulting? You know, when we say, look, give us our people back from this carceral state. We're freedom fighters. We want liberation for our people who are all political prisoners. And they say, well, what did they do? Aside from saying words that I cannot say here on the air, what should our response be to those kinds of questions? I'll try to be creative, too, because we're on the air. Let me start with that. Um, (laughs) I mean, the thing is, when they say, what did they do? Um, You can simply say, well, um, they, they, um, they were arrested because of the fact that they resisted capitalism, they resisted imperialism. You know what I mean? So whatever they did would be a response to that. If they, if they happened to uh, um, uh, expropriate a, uh, a, an, an, an armored truck, expropriate the, uh, the funds in it or whatever, if they happened to um, uh, seek reparations on their own, take back something that was already theirs, you know what I mean? Then that's, that's fighting imperialism. Um, if they happened to have to uh, take someone out that was trying to take them out, and, they, and that particular someone happens to be an armed agent of the state. I mean, you know, again, that, that's self-defense. They're defending themselves. You know what I mean? So in war, there are no neutrals in war. So you have folks that come up with excuses as to why we shouldn't fight back or why we shouldn't even support the fighters. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, we're in such a strange situation and we're among such strange people that I know folks that if they could, they would kick me out the movement. Mm. See what I'm saying? They would kick us out of the movement because rather than see us fight with the force and gravity that we with, that we that we move with, then them even knowing that they couldn't and won't fight themselves, they'd rather not see you fight. You understand what I'm saying? They'd rather uh, think of reasons to to not support you. You know what I mean? Here it is. We have these particular networks and channels that we've created that we all know about. I see many of the listeners and viewers in the in the chat room or whatever. And, and no, I didn't borrow Dr. Jared Ball's Ethernet cord. Mine is great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> folks in the chat talking crazy. But, um, you know, you have folks that we're, we're in such a situation, such a, um, a serious mental crisis. We're in such a men- serious mental crisis that, uh, and spiritually dead that, you know, we don't even want to be liberated. We don't want to be free. We'd rather try to make an effort to be accepted by the very empire that we're talking about fighting against. Yeah, that that's a fact. And, you know, shout out Black Power Media and Jared Ball and everybody and, you know, Kim Brown and all of the BPM remixers in the By Any Means Necessary chat right now. It's always good to see y'all. But we're going to pick this conversation up on the other side of the break. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., so stay tuned. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. 
Phone lines are now open, my friends, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined today by Kalanji Jamachanga. And Kalanji, we were talking about Black August and getting our ideology straight around the need for continued struggle for Black liberation. And I did shout out Black Power Media. I think it's important that we highlight an event that is coming up that will encapsulate some of those, well, all of those issues on Black Power Media and tell us a little bit about it so uh, we can participate and support. That's what's up. Um, first off, I want to say, man, I'm just realizing that it's, it's Jackie and Kalanji on here. <laughs> Over not a makeover. I don't even. I forgot. Sean wasn't even in the building. Don't say that. Don't do. I, I, I love. I love Sean. Shout out to Sean. But we about to go crazy up there. I'm, I'm gonna watch my words. This might be the last time they let me fill in for him ever. You know, Sputnik. Anything can happen. Um. First and foremost, yes. So, uh, we will be commemorating the 42nd year, um, 42nd year commemoration of Black August, um, with a number of different good folks. Uh, we're gonna have. My brother, Dr. Jared Ball, he'll be on board. Uh, we have Mama Ayana Mashama. Um, I don't know if you all know who Mama Ayana is. She's one of the founding members of the Black August Organizing Committee. In fact, I just did an interview with her about a week ago on Riot Starter TV on Black Power Media, so definitely check that out. But she will be on there live and direct. We have my sister, Sunny Patterson. Sunny Patterson is a renowned poet, priestess. She is the truth, period. Um, Dr. Crystal Strong would be on board. We all know Dr. Crystal Strong out in Philly putting in that soldier work. And we will have my uh, my comrade at arms, my teammate, my brother, who's in the chat room right now, my brother Balogun O.J. Tade will be on board as well. And he will be talking about the importance of the physical and spiritual side of what it is we're doing. We co-chair a, uh, a, a piece called the Urban Survival Preparedness Institute, I am also his student in the African Martial Arts Institute, and we are comrades in the FTP movement. So that is my comrade and my brother, and here's the truth. So for Black August, uh, on this Sunday at 5 p.m. on Black Power Media, we aim and strive to uh, share and teach and, and, um, and honor our ancestors, our freedom fighters who've been martyred, uh, our political prisoners, and our comrades, which will include many of you that are in the chat because of the fact that, uh, you know, I know some of you personally, some that, some that I don't, but I know that you all are the supporters of what we do. So we definitely consider you strong allies and in some cases, comrades. So, yes, this Sunday, 5 p.m., Black Power TV, mm-hmm. Black Power Media, I'm sorry. And, you know, let me just say, Sean and I say this very often, that, that we are fortunate to do what we do for a living. And and I mean, <laughs> the things we say on this show, we would say them anyway. We do say them anyway. And we carry out what we believe in our lives because this is an activism for us. As you said earlier, Kalanji, this is our life. The struggle for liberation is our life. We do we do it for free. So we, we're fortunate that we get paid to do this as well. But, you know, looking in the chat and I did look down and see Brother Balagun and I thought, you know, oh, my God, I, I can't say anything crazy because, you know, Brother Balagun is, is watching. And let me make sure I'm on my P's and Q's. And I cannot tell you how many times I have had that experience when I have realized that people who I look up to, you are one of them. 
who, you know, I realized, oh, my gosh, these people are we get to talk to them and we get to, you know, work with them and, and glean from them. And goodness gracious, what 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 a journey this is. So, you know, as as much of a joy and an honor that it's been that I've got to sit in this chair for the week while Sean takes a break, I'll be glad when that brother is back. So. Trust me, (laughs) I am blessed by his presence as much as everybody else is. But, you know, we do have a caller on the line. Baltimore Charles, y'all talked him up. Tell us what's on your mind. (laughs) How are you, my sister? How are you today? All right. Can can you hear? Okay. Uh, Yeah, I I have a little bit of breaking news for you uh, that I'm sure your audience will be interested in. But uh, before I uh, do that, I'll make a quick comment that... uh, I'm sure that uh, rather than having you pick up those donuts which you have uh, put aside, you're going to go back to trying that okra and uh, those other fresh garden vegetables that you have raised uh, in your uh, in your garden there. Uh, you know, because uh, we as indicated, we do need you. Uh, uh, the other point that I wanted to make was that. What do you think about taking those uh, January 6th insurrectionists and the, and the gentleman who uh, attacked the Capitol? Why don't, you, why don't we give them an option of going over there to Afghanistan and putting them in as uh, people to protect uh, uh, the uh, security over there since they want to fight and uh, uh, they want to uh, uh, raise all kinds of uh, hellabaloo and stuff like that. Uh, I wish you're thinking about that. Now, here's the breaking news for you and your family over there. Uh, in Maryland now, there is a controversy about people being locked up for cannabis such as marijuana and uh, and and other things, but it turns out that the laboratories over here, through the state police and uh, uh, other laboratories, can't tell the difference between the marijuana content of the THC and the hemp uh, THC, and hemp being a uh, a legal. Um, uh, what they call a legal substance or a legal plant, uh, which uh, a lot of people uh, partake in and so forth, uh, they have, what they are doing is they are conflicting that with the marijuana so that and making locking people up for ingesting uh, uh, a hemp when they think that it's marijuana. And the the uh, laboratories uh, over here, the uh, crime laboratories, uh, don't have the certified people who are uh, trained to tell the difference. So it could be that uh, in places like Washington, D.C., Maryland, and all over the country, people are being locked up illegally, particularly people of color, uh, because they take uh, a partake of the CBDs or the hemp products and so forth, uh, wind up uh, getting caught and, and things of that nature and getting the hammer slammed down on them. So um, stay alert and stay woke uh, on that issue is developing here in Maryland, and you're going to hear something about it. Uh, you know, very very soon uh, it's going to be announced. So I wanted to bring that uh, to your attention and uh, see what you, uh, if you guys are running. And by the way, at Washington D.C. Crime Lab, I understand they have shut that down, uh, and uh, they want to farm it out to some independent agency and so forth. What can you tell us about that? And uh, thank you for taking my call. I hope you have a great weekend.
Well, thanks so much, Charles. Always good to hear from you folks. We're a little bit worried about you, but we're glad to know that you are all right. Hope to hear from you again soon. As far as I know, this will not be the first time that the forensics work was farmed out of the D.C. crime, from the D.C. crime lab to so-called independent uh, agencies. I mean, so that's not a surprise. As far as, you know, sending the January 6th insurrectionists to Afghanistan, look, those people have been through enough. I, I wouldn't subject those people in that country to, you know, hundreds more uh, of of unhinged white supremacists any more than they've already been subjected to all of the unhinged white supremacists that are trying to leave their country right now that are in military uniforms. But I don't know. What what, what do you have to say, Kalanji, about our caller's comments? Uh, <laughs> Other than the words you can't say. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, it was a lot to unfold and un, un, uh, unpack. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to take the easy road out and say, um, in the mortal words of uh, Peter Todd, legalizing our advertise. Anyway, <laughs> I, was, I, I got kind of lost with it. So. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think what he was saying was that the authorities are entrapping people. If I understand what he, what he was saying, that the authorities are entrapping people and locking people up for like marijuana possession or being under the influence of marijuana when really they've only imbibed uh, CBD-based products. And, you know, surprise? I'm I'm not, (laughs) like, once you start legalizing the thing that has locked up more black and brown people in the past 40, 50 years than any violent crime, of course the authorities are going to be like, how do we, how can we keep these, how can we keep putting these people in jail? Oh, I know. Let's pretend. You know that that they're that they're still under the influence, and yeah, so th- so that's not a surprise. But I think that it was that is definitely something that we'll continue to pay attention to. But you know, Kalanji, since he did bring up January sixth, I do want to ask you your thoughts about this guy who turned himself in, uh, Floyd Ray Roseberry of North Carolina, who was taken into custody without incident uh, here in D.C for threatening to bomb the Capitol. Now, the police chief's assertions, you know, about Roseberry, that there was no bomb, they they didn't find any any explosive devices, even though he said there were like four other cars with other people with bombs and all this kind of stuff. They didn't find any of that stuff. But here's the thing that blows my mind about this case, Kalanji. The... Police authorities said that over the course of time, when they were negotiating with Roseberry, they started doing the negotiating with a whiteboard. So they gave him a whiteboard, I guess, to write messages on it back and forth to negotiate with him. And then they used a robot not to go and extricate him from his vehicle, but to go send him a telephone so that they could communicate with him. But he wouldn't use the telephone. so. The authority said that shortly after we had delivered the telephone, then he got out of the vehicle and surrendered. And then the tactical units close by took him into custody without incident. I I have words and I, I think I said them earlier, in my monologue, but I, I, I cannot say anything else right now, Kalanji, because I'm just. What are your thoughts on 
this mess right here. But first of all, for the listeners, I, I want to let y'all know that uh, Jackie sent me a list of words I couldn't say. <laughs> we <laughs> we got to start it. Let me start with that. So, um, nah, um, you know, it, it's crazy because we, we just saw uh, the piece here in Atlanta a few days ago where the brother Travis uh, Moya was literally getting his shoulder chewed off um, in front of his own home for not laying on the ground. Uh, because someone said that he hit his hit his own outside of his own house and threw his own chair on the ground and didn't hurt anyone. So they wanted to, you know, they had him maimed. But here it is, this this uh, gentleman was named Floyd Ray. Uh, Floyd Ray from North Carolina decides that he's going to pull up on the curb at the Library of Congress and uh, hop on Facebook Live and call the police and tell them that he had bombs and whatnot, right? And, you know, they didn't shoot him. They didn't tase him. They didn't treat him bad. You know what I'm saying? Like you said, they sent the robot over there with with a phone. They gave him a whiteboard to write with. I'm like, man, you know, this cat right here, man, it's like, you know, I I can't even be upset because of the fact that I, I recognize what colony I'm in. You understand what I'm saying? I, I recognize... Um, you know, what plantation we're on, you know, so it, it's just, it's almost like a comedy skit. So some of these things right here, you have folks that, uh, that, that write movies and, 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 you know, fictional books and things of that nature. I mean, this is, this is it right here, man. It's like, they give you all the material you need, all yeah. the material you need. But we act surprised as, as, as black folks, as African folks, or, or indigenous people, whatever we choose to call ourselves. We act surprised um, when we see this as if, you know, this ain't the norm. Like, this is how it goes. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like, I mean, wow. You know, wow. You know, my only problem with it, I don't, I don't mind being treated differently. I just, um, you know, I just have a problem with us making excuses why why we can't see this for what it is. You know what I mean? It's like we report the same news every day and just change the names and, 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 the, and the location. You know what I'm saying? It's the same thing, same playbook everywhere. So, you know, shout out to Floyd. He made it through. And, um, you know, I guess he'll get probation. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't want to laugh, but it is so ridiculously hypocritical. I can't help but laugh because... It is so obvious how this system prioritizes the grievances of these unhinged right wing folks. Grievances that, I mean, aren't really legitimate over the legitimate grievances of folks like us. Now, the interesting thing is that if these folks who had these kind of grievances like Floyd Ray Roseberry had, you know, he he talked about Afghanistan. He talked about, you know, Biden. And, and then he talked about, oh, you know, I'm, I'm you know, this is the revolution. But but none of those things, you know, this, this thing about revolution is never in the context coming from folks like him about, you know, providing for the people. You know what I mean? It's never about, look, the economy has not been the economy that our parents and grandparents knew where they could get a decent job with a high school education. You understand what I'm saying? That we, we can't afford health care. We can't afford dental care. Housing is expensive. So yeah, 
let's 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 start this up in here. Let's start a revolution. No, it's never about that from these folks. It's always, you know, all oh, the carpetbagger Democrats are trying to implement socialism. And it's like, dude, if anybody needs socialism, it's some of y'all down in the South who are still waging your lost cause idealization. But it's just wild to me that that, you know, the media again, yet again, has painted him as sympathetic. And we see that the police, the very capital police that got all this extra money because they just couldn't deal with all of those angry white people that they didn't think were a threat on January 6th, once again, just responded to this white guy in a very different way than they responded, you know, even just a few weeks ago to black women who were protesting for the right to vote, for voting rights for black folks. So, I mean, it's it's crazy that we're still having to make these obvious connections obvious to people who refuse to see them. But I suppose that's our job. But we will take another break and come back on the other side. We see you caller. We'll get you on the other side. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. So please stay tuned. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lupemon, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, my friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Kalanji Jamakchanga and caller Tarif we see you. Thanks for holding so patiently. Tell us what's on your mind. I have two comments. Uh, first, I'd like to say free drawing signs, free Danuser, and hands off of Haiti. Okay, my first comment is dealing with um, what's going on in the war in Afghanistan. The journalists, the real journalists and you know, uh, whistleblowers, it's the best time for them to start releasing information now. It's, it's very important. If they have any important information, and start releasing it now on a CIA, release information on the CIA, FBI, NSA, other government agencies, NGOs, military industrial complex, and any other organizations that may, that may be helping these corrupt bureaucrats, you know, corrupt globalists. All right. These documentations, what they have to release, might prevent a nuclear war between us and China and Russia. Documents on like MK Ultra, Quarantel Pro from the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, JFK assassination, MLK assassination, other assassinations that took place in the United States and around the world, and other things dealing with surveillance. That's my first comment. My second comment is dealing with the Haiti um, oligarchs. Since we human beings not getting a um, class on geopolitics and how what happened in Afghanistan is now affecting the world right now, right? What the Haitians have to do, they have the the way they can deal with these oligarchs, these twelve people that did, that's in Haiti, that's running everything. There's ones that's Arabic that come from like Egypt or uh, or uh, Iraq or Saudi Arabia, wherever they come from. They need to make friends with these countries and get these people. Yeah, because I'm I'm pretty sure they they part of these 
parties over there, right? Political parties over there to talk to them, say, look, leave these Haitian people alone. Pay them, pay them um, their taxes. Stop ripping them off. Give them back their land. Leave them alone. Or we're going to uh, kick you out of party or throw you in, uh, in prison over here. That's how you deal with these oligarchs and these armed gangsters that's in Haiti, that's running around, they receive this money supposedly from the um, armed, from the um, oligarchs. They need to switch sides and start providing security now for the people and helping these people out. They need to realize whose side they on. Are you are they for the Haitian people to for development and getting infrastructure and working with other countries? Or are they just about themselves? All that killing and just um um just not doing anything constructive need to end. They gotta start developing Haiti. They gotta need to start building schools, hospitals, power plants and all that. And build up their own infrastructure. That's all I got to say. Thank you for taking my call. All right, Tariq, thank you so much for calling. Hope to hear from you soon. We have another caller on the line. Thomas, tell us what's on your mind. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for letting me on the show. Absolutely. Um, I heard Kalanji on the show. He, he's a good friend of mine down in Atlanta. And I think that when I turned in, y'all, when I tuned in, the two of you were talking about political prisoners. If not, and if the talk about Black August was just solely about the symbolic nature of Black August, including the need to free political prisoners. I want to say this. The reason why we suffer in this country among, is, is manifold. But one of the most important reasons is we're not willing to make the sacrifice to liberate ourselves, to empower ourselves. We're not even willing to make the sacrifice to unify. When we have people like Sundiata Okoli in prison for nearly 50 years, who was trying to overthrow the government that, as that previous caller said, served as oligarchs oppressing us, and we leave him in prison to die? That means that our struggle for liberation is bankrupt. It doesn't matter how extraordinary those of us who are in the street happen to be. If we never couple our struggles in the streets, in our homes, and in our communities elsewhere with the struggle to liberate people like Sundiata Okoli, Dr. Matulu Shakur, Leonard Peltier, and so many others. We've literally said that when people struggle to liberate our people, try to overthrow the government that has used sadistic genocide to oppress us, we'll leave them in prison when they get captured. And that's, when, when that's going on, that sort of shame is intolerable, and it weakens us to a degree that tells our enemy that our bottom line is not much of a bottom line. Kalanji and I talked about this many times when we were together fighting to, unsuccessfully, unfortunately, to save Troy Anthony Davis from being executed. That was about 10 years ago. And that's when I met Kalanji and he and I, actually, well, that's when I met him and we've been tight ever since. We haven't been in touch, but I don't think I have to be in touch with Kalanji to call him my friend. But I will say this, assuming that he was saying something along those lines before I called in and what he said when I called him when he was talking about Black August. And also when I heard some months, maybe about a month, maybe a few months ago when you had Jihad Abdul-Mumit of the Jericho movement on the line, and he, another friend of mine, was speaking, speaking passionately about the need to liberate our people from prison, where they get tortured, where sometimes they get killed and just left to die. 
and then we, we just leave them to be buried in the prison graveyards. When he talked passionately about the need to liberate those people, and he being a former political prisoner for 20 years saying that, and we still can't couple our liberation movement even against these, these racist police state, this oligarchic police state, our struggles are politically bankrupt. And, and I don't want to believe that, but um, that's what I worry about. I'm going to leave it to you two to talk further about it or take it wherever you go, because I truly enjoy your show, Miss um, Lukman. You and, um, you, and, you and your co-hosts are extraordinary, and Kalanji, he's extraordinary. Take care. Goodbye. Thank you so much, Thomas, for calling. Really, really appreciate your call and am honored by your call. And let me always like to make this clear. I'm the co-host. Sean Blackman is the host. So and I I have mad respect for that brother. And, you know, Thomas, we were talking about political prisoners at the beginning of the show because this is a part of our liberation struggle. It is the liberation struggle, Kalanji, and there is no liberation struggle. And this is something that I had to learn myself, that there is no liberation struggle. I can't talk about reparations if I am not talking about repatriating our people from inside the walls of the carceral state. I can't talk about, you know, getting our land back if our people who are inside the walls uh, are still counted in the census in the states in which they are incarcerated and not released to go back home to where they and their families live. I mean, this struggle for the freedom of our incarcerated people, political prisoners, because that's what they are, that has to be central to this liberation struggle, Kalanji. Otherwise, I mean, what really are we fighting for? Some trinkets? Laville, man. I mean, it's, it's whoo. I mean, first and foremost, shout out to uh, Attorney Thomas Ruffin. I, I didn't recognize his voice at first. Um, he was definitely out there. Um, front line, we were fighting on behalf of uh, Troy Anthony Davis, who was, uh, who became a political prisoner mm. by, by default because of the fact that he was falsely accused of murdering a police officer. And he was uh, framed. There was a situation, I don't know if you remember that particular case, where there was uh, nine witnesses, Witnesses, seven of them recanted their story. The eighth said Troy was uh, uh, definitely right-handed and Troy was left-handed. And the ninth was the person that they believe was the actual shooter himself. So I actually met Troy, I mean, excuse me, met um, Thomas. And we worked on, uh, together with, with others, on uh, Troy Anthony Davis's case, um, down in in, in uh, Savannah, Georgia, we were really close uh, to uh, to that particular family. So definitely, you know, shout out to Thomas um, because of the fact that I know that he's a brother that used his own money to travel around the country to uh, you know try to get this word out. But yes, it is it is imperative for us to um, fight not only for our political prisoners but um, those who are social prisoners as well. Because again, for the most part, most so-called crimes that are committed in America has to do with capitalism. Usually, it's it's uh, you know the, the, the force of, of of the fact that um, that that uh, folks were kidnapped and displaced, and we talk about you know uh, you know genocide and 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 uh, 
and gentrification and all that good stuff, this is all, you know, part and parcel uh, of, of capitalism, of imperialism, um, colonialism, and so on and so forth. You know, it, it, you know, talking right now and just hearing that brother's voice a few minutes ago, it brought me back to another place, another place in time. Um, to the to the listeners, man, you have to realize that, you know, I've been organizing myself since 1986. You understand what I'm saying? Since 1986 as a teenager. You know, so, you know, it's it, it, it difficult sometimes because of the fact that I've organized all over the country. And, and saying that, not for bragging rights, but there's been so many different cases of political prisoners, so many cases of people who I've, I've held people who, whose parents lost their lives to police, babies, you know, three-week-old babies whose father had just gotten lit up by the police. You know what I'm saying? Um, I, I've seen so much in these times, and it, it almost sounds like we're begging sometimes in a, in a weird way to get our people to fight back. You understand what I'm saying? It, it seems like we're begging sometimes for our people to just, you know, man, if, if you can't get on the battlefield, at least support our troops, support those who are willing to get out there. We have to move on beyond just, you know, talking trash on the Internet. We've got to move beyond just, you know, I, I have these particular degrees, so I am the foremost authority on what you live in real life. You understand what I'm saying? We get so caught up in writing and talking about movement and struggle, writing and talk about liberation and revolution and all that type stuff, but we don't make it to the battlefields. We stand on the edge of the shore and we look out and we report on what's happening in 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 this in this uh, in this tidal wave, man. So. You know, shout out to all the all the comrades, brothers and sisters who are behind the walls and those who are in general populations, because believe it or not, we're all in general population. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> we are absolutely a colonized people inside the, as, as Sean likes to say, the beating heart of imperialism. We are a domestic colony in this country. And I, I think you know, it, it it blew my mind, Kalanji, that you said that that you know you've been organizing yourself since 1986. Someone in the chat said that you've been in the struggle as long as they've been alive. Well, I graduated high school in 1985, so I mean, I'm not going to ask you, you know, how old you are, but dang, bro, you've been living pretty good. So <laughs> I feel good, and that's and that that is incredibly important. In what we do. I mean, it's hard enough. It's difficult enough. It takes a lot mentally from you. But to hear Attorney Ruffin call and to hear the affection that you both have for each other still. And, you know, when I talk to Daruba Ben Wahad and I hear the affection that you two have for each other and the affection that you know, I have for Sean and, and, and the affection we all have on Black Power Media. We need that in this struggle, because if we don't take care of each other and encourage each other to take care of ourselves, we ain't going to last. We will not last. And I think that what happened in Colorado, Kalanji, with the state of Colorado finally addressing an absolutely obscene order 
that has stood on the books that it was law because folks always talk about law and order, this, that, and the third. But I think what happened in Colorado sort of speaks to the importance of us needing to pay attention to our longevity, to make sure we stay in this fight, to see some of the fruits of our labor come to pass, no matter how long it takes, Kalanji. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's wild just like seeing this whole, that particular order you talking about. Um, what, what Jackie's talking about is the Colorado governor uh, just voided this 1864 order to kill Native Americans, to kill the, the indigenous people of this land. That particular order um, was given by the second territorial governor, uh, John Evans, um, back, um, what was it, like 1864 had to be, I think, 157 years ago. That's how old this thing is. So they finally took off the books this order to kill indigenous people. Now, this same order had led to what was called the Sand Creek Massacre. Uh, over 200 Arapaho uh, uh, and uh, Cheyenne people, men, women, and children, elderly, the whole thing, were massacred. They were massacred. And here it is, 100 and 57 years later, they're saying, you know what? We, we're going to take this off the books. And, you know, um, you know, this is a bad uh, time in history. So, you know, we, we want to, you know, make bygones be bygones. But this this right here, this isn't a, a you know, a hatred of, of, of other people by Europeans. You know, the hatred that they had for other people. You know, this was the norm. There was a situation in, in Oregon in uh, 1887, Snake River. Uh, they called it the Snake River Attack. 34 Chinese gold miners were killed. You know what I'm saying? It, I read this article, and they, they referenced the move bombing. I mean, it's been so many different situations here in the United States. And then what they tell you is, okay, boom, we're going to change this law, or we're going to change this bill. I live in Georgia right now. The, 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 the particular county I live in, is Cobb County. It is a, a racist county where people are afraid to come. And it's a part of Atlanta. It's right on the line. You know, but this is a place where the, the, the name was held by a governor who was a slave owner that had 150 something slaves. You know what I'm saying? We have to remember that we live in a country where when they talk about the, the forefathers, eight of the 12 first presidents were slave owners. Understand what I'm saying? You're talking about George Washington had 300 slaves. Thomas Jefferson had 600-plus slaves. Right. Understand what I'm saying? George Washington's wife, Martha, who they always talk about, oh, yes, Martha Washington, she made biscuits, she did this. She used to give her family and friends slaves for weddings. Enslaved Africans. This is historical. This ain't, you know, something that I'm making up to, you know, make white folks feel bad. It's, it's the reality of where we are. And we live with the descendants of these people. And these same people become cops and military and so on and so forth. That's right. Then we talk about we know our rights. What right do we know? Our right from our left? <laughs> our right from the wrong direction to go in? What are you talking about you know your rights? We really, and, and it's like, there's so many people that I know who consider themselves freedom fighters, and they still keep talking about the law. 
Now, indeed, there's certain things you have to obey. You know what I mean? You obey the quote unquote law or you operate under that particular law. But when it comes to the law being on your side, if you really are thinking that you're thinking about the law working on behalf of you, then you're, you're sadly mistaken. Indeed. Well, we are out of time for the show. And for this week, we'll be back next week with a whole new slate of shows. And Sean Blackman will be back. But thank you so much for tuning in to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm Jackie Lukeman. Y'all take care of yourselves and be good to each other. Until next time, peace. By Any Means Necessary.